0: Disperse immediately or you will be subject to arrest ain't nothing but a thief on a time loan. 128-bit war, you play Nintendo. On some shooters, so put the bridge down or feed us to the killer bees. We get what we deserve, Life. bury me with my MP3s. Write my manifesto in 72 DPI. Life's just a game you got cheated, never learned. I write these songs to every bridge that ain't been burned. For every cop car that ain't
1: My name is Pine, and I'm here to talk about the Defend the Atlanta Forest campaign for Wilani People's Park.
2: Well, thanks for joining us. We've had a couple folks on the show talking about the struggle to defend the Atlanta Forest. Just kind of walk us through what interested you about this, and to start us off, just tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I find especially compelling about the campaign to defend the Atlanta forest is that this forest is in an urban area and it's a forest that people see, touch, interact with every day. It's right in their neighborhood, as opposed to some other like forest defense campaigns or water defense, um, anti-pipeline actions that are often like out in very rural areas that people might not see all the time. But the people who live in this neighborhood of Atlanta will really be directly and immediately impacted by the forest removal. Not only would they lose the woods that they currently are able to use as a park, uh, but the woods would be replaced with a militarized police training center and a movie studio. And so I think the residents of this area are it's easier to kind of get them on our side and help them see like why this forest is so important to people.
2: I believe this is like the fourth week of action that's happened in Atlanta Mm -hmm. around this. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, I think, I think so too. I wasn't there for all of them, Uh, but there have been several and the week of action has been, or all of them have been a great way to draw people from various areas around the country and even outside of the country. Uh, to visit the Atlanta Forest, get to interact with it, um, and kind of learn more about the struggle there.
2: I mean, there's just like a constant stream of activity, whether it's like, you know, people canvassing or making posters or food distribution. There's all the things that go on inside the forest in terms of like different events, whether it's like celebrations or musical stuff or workshops or films. How has that worked to bring bring people from the surrounding area into the struggle.
1: Hmm. Yeah. This is actually one of the other things that I find pretty compelling about this campaign is that there is something for everyone to do, which I believe is true of the movement generally. Uh, but with this being, you know, the forest and a park, we do really want the park to be for everyone. So like you mentioned in this past week of action, there were several days that were essentially a music festival in the woods and people who came there just to experience music in the forest were then kind of part of the campaign. Or, you know, there's people who come in to do food distribution. Now there's regular food distribution every week um, in the parking lot. And so people from the forest are able to come get food there and also people from the surrounding areas. There's so many artists also. Um, some of the other mainstream news articles that people may have seen have these huge banners with this like beautiful artwork that I, as someone who is definitely not an artist, I am just always impressed by people's creative vision and the logistics needed to get, you know, a giant banner 20 feet in the air, anything like that. So yeah, there's always something for everybody to do, which I think is really exciting.
2: Do you feel like that, that amount of interaction uh, with the wider population, is that increasing or has it kind of like hit a plateau or is it just growing all the time?
1: I'm not totally sure, though. I think that there could always be more. Uh, I think especially in their interactions between the people who are focused mostly on the forest defense or like in the woods closer to full time um, and the people who more so live in the city of Atlanta. I think that they each have kind of different roles to play so for the people in the city it's a lot easier for them to do some of the like canvassing outreach to neighbors uh even just printing of flyers because there's no printers in the woods keeping our phones charged things like that and then for the people in the woods some of the more direct actions or things that require a quick response like if there's equipment coming in right now you know if somebody lives in the city or lives in the city and has a job they're not going to be on the list for quick response. Uh, so I think having a little bit more recognition of like the different roles that people can play just based on what their life circumstances look like uh, could really increase engagement in an effective and efficient way.
2: How effective do you feel the campaign has been in, in just like putting this on the, the map of people's minds? Because one of the things we talked about last time is this is, Something that's not necessarily in the news a lot. And I, I believe the, one of the largest publications or the biggest newspapers or outlets, I believe it's like the Atlanta Journal, uh, has ties to like the police union. So there's sort of a complication mm-hmm. of interest there. Uh, right. do you feel that this campaign has solidified this as something that is important within the minds of everyday people in, in, in Atlanta?
1: I think there's still room to grow, honestly, that uh, it's definitely made its mark on people who are already interested in or doing anarchism to any degree. I think most people who do some kind of forest defense know about this campaign. And there are still people who I think know that it's happening, but maybe don't quite understand some of why or maybe don't understand that the impact that the removal of the forest would have or the installation of a cop city would also be a huge impact for people that they might not quite understand. Uh, so I think that there's more explanation that could be given to some of the news outlets if they were you know, willing to kind of report our side of the story, which to their credit, many of them have, but I still think that there could be more.
2: Let's say that all the people in the woods right now that are there just suddenly disappeared. Are they physically blocking construction right now? And like, how successful have they been in blocking it? Like, how backed up is the project
1: because of the actions of the people in the woods? Well, so far, timeline of construction has definitely been delayed. And there are people who are putting their bodies in the way, uh, both by living in treehouses or similar structures so that, you know, they would have to be removed uh, prior to cutting the tree or taking down the treehouse or else they would risk injury or death for, you know, falling from a treehouse high up in the air. Um, And then there are other people whose response kind of, as I was mentioning the quick response, like if there's equipment coming in on the ground, but it's not attacking a treehouse, can people get there and like, stand in the way, or there are uh, some barricades that might block equipment or slow it down enough for people to respond in the moment.
2: What does day-to-day life look like for those that are out there?
1: Well, I think that most day-to-day is pretty simple. It's a lot of the activities of daily life, you know, wake up and make breakfast like everybody else. Um, But it's on the days where... The, I guess the forest is more actively under threat that it might look different. And I think that there's a lot of kind of waiting for that to happen or trying to be on, not exactly on the offense, but ready for something to happen. So thinking like, do you have your go bag? Do you have your phone set up? Do you have everything charged? And I think also there's a lot more activity during the week of action. So like we were talking about there are people who come in from all over bringing all different kinds of uh talents and interests and resources. Uh like there were different foraging workshops, there were different like medicinal teas, there's like walks through the forest to identify different kinds of plants, music festival, just all kinds of things, which I think is pretty unique to the week of some degree of skill share that happens anytime that people with skills are all together in the same place. Yeah, one of our
2: past guests was talking about how there were interesting things like gardens being set up. Yeah, I'm just curious if you want to talk about any of the infrastructure that's exciting in terms of just how people are interacting with the forest itself.
1: Yeah, so the Ulano Pupil's Garden is a small garden along the bike path, which is part of the publicly accessible park so anyone who goes to use the bike path gets to walk by it and anyone can take from it. It's growing eggplants right now, which is pretty exciting. And I think the transformation of the space in the parking lot on the ICP or Entrenchment Creek Park side has been really nice that the gazebo has turned into something of a little supply center so people can stop there for like snacks and drinks and information uh, there's also another free store set up in the parking lot in a small tent. So things like clothes, um, various small items, things that people decided they don't need and want to give away for free. So I really like seeing those wherever they pop up. The weekly food distro also happens in that parking lot. So uh, anyone driving by on the road can see it and participate. And then within the woods, there's a lot of spaces for people to be. I think that people have done a really nice job of making things as cozy as they can for being in the woods. So there's places to hang out, there's places to cook and keep food, there's places to camp, whether that's by yourself, because you like your own little corner or with a small group or uh, closer to other people in the, the camp infrastructure that does exist. So I think that yeah, people have done a lot to build out infrastructure in the woods, both for the people who are there full time and for people who will engage somewhat with the woods to just see that this is happening and bring something positive to the space.
2: Can you talk a little more about that? You said there was a free store and also an uh, entrenchment Creek Park. We hear a lot about that. There's sort of like a, a little hub there that people can drop off supplies. Like, what does that look like? And also, I'm curious, you know, the supply drives, is that a sizable group of folks that are coming out to uh, support the people in the trees and give them supplies?
1: Yeah, I'd say that. Uh, people are generally pretty willing to support, especially when we have specific asks. And generally they're pretty specific and easy asks. Like we would love to have a case of water or um, we could use more non-perishable foods, things like that, that pretty much anyone can do. And anyone just even has in their pantry at home, they might not even have to go out and get anything. So yeah, some of the like nicest interactions that I've had with members of the public is they come in to enjoy the park and also bring us some supplies so it's people who enjoy the park kind of understand why we're doing what we're doing and want to help support that effort with
2: a little bit of whatever they have and you said the free store is in the park or it's it's outside of it
1: uh the free store is in the parking lot though i think to some degree a lot of the stuff is like a free store there's not a whole lot of uh, personal or private property among the uh, tree dwellers. I think uh, all of the people there kind of understand that we have to share our things to get by. Uh, and it's also practically easier for both the activities of daily life, like making food for 10 and all sharing it instead of everybody making their own food. Or like if somebody needs a harness for climbing or Somebody doesn't have a tent or lost their sleeping bag. We all have to like take care of each other in that way as mutual aid.
2: In terms of the tree sits that are happening, do you feel like this is a continuation of like a lot of the other tree sits that we've seen, or is this sort of like mutating and evolving in in new directions?
1: The unique thing about these tree sits is that they're being used in conjunction with so many other tactics in other places, at least that I'm familiar with, uh, tree sets are often like the uh, NVDA or nonviolent direct action that is happening and can people come together to just support this tree sit. But in Atlanta, I think the tree sits are more of a tactic that's happening in conjunction with lots of other things. So there are some people who are focused on the tree set, um, whether living in it or being an active support role, there are lots of people who help build them and then don't do much with them after that. Uh, and then there are lots of people who can take other actions that might be more aligned with like tactics or risk level that they're comfortable with, um, which is just different than a tree set. And I think it's really cool and interesting to see, all of these tactics exist in the same space.
2: Well, I'm curious in terms of how the police and those that are involved in the attempt to develop the park, what does that kind of look like on a day-to-day basis? From the reports, it seems like they they come in with like not a sizable group of people. I don't know if that's a misperception, but when these incursions happen, are there a lot of police? Are there a lot of people that are trying to do work or what does it look like? Is it
1: different all the time? Yeah, I think it just depends. Yeah, of course. Um, we have seen previously, for example, following not the most recent act- week of action, but the one before that, that there was a large number of like police, FBI and SWAT all staged uh, around the forest. and. Many of them did come in. But on the day-to-day, there isn't too much police intrusion. Recently, there has been some work happening with police escorts, but it seems like their role is more of trying to, I guess, shield the workers and equipment to let the work happen um, and not specifically going in to uh, raid the camp or purposefully make arrests as they have done in the past um, so it's a little bit of a different strategy I think that they're using now and I'm not sure where that will go next.
2: Gotcha you mentioned the uh, presence of the FBI uh, has there been a degree of harassment of folks uh, has that materialized into like supporters being harassed or people in general that are active in the campaign or have they just kind
1: of been around with other law enforcement and developers? Yes. The FBI has actively been targeting and harassing people who are involved with the campaign. There are multiple people who have received uh, phone calls or knocks on their doors or knocks on the door of an address that they appear to live at, trying to fish for information about their involvement in the campaign Or, for example, their car being seen somewhere. And I think that we will see more of that. It is a good, I guess, reminder for everyone to be aware of, you know, obviously, don't talk to the cops. Don't let your friends, family, loved ones, roommates, whatever, make sure they also know to not talk to the cops. And that it seems like if they're fishing for information like this, there's a lot that they don't know. And it would be good to keep it that way.
2: Where do you see things going from here? Uh, this is an interesting point for the campaign. There's a lot of energy. It's starting to get mass media attention. Uh, there's a lot of people that have their eyes on it. Where do you think it's at right now?
1: Well, I think one of the things that the campaign really needs is for more people to go to the woods. Um, and especially to go, uh, either consistently or whenever works. For you, not necessarily only for the week of action. Because construction is starting. Like, they have been bringing in machines and doing or attempting to cut trees or clear small areas. And that will only escalate as time goes on. And if they aren't met with forest defense. So I think that anyone who is able, go to the woods. Especially if you have a group of trusted friends that you can bring with you. And as always any other support, right? Not everyone wants to live in the woods and that's not the thing that is suited to everyone's lifestyle. And so following the social media for the campaign and like responding to the request for material supports uh, are always really helpful. For the people who live in the city of Atlanta, getting involved with the city side of the campaign and trying to support the people who are living in the woods, doing the day-to-day Forest defense, I think, is, like, a really good way to be involved. But, yeah, as we talked about earlier, there's just something for everyone to do. And only by more involvement are we going to actually successfully defend the forest and prevent the construction of the cop city.
2: Uh, Some of the folks that we were talking to uh, were really inspired by the week of action, just talking about how it felt like this was something that was going to, really reverberate with folks and they were going to kind of take this back to where they were locally. I'm just curious, you know, your thoughts, like, did you feel really inspired by the campaign in the week of action? And and what do you see this energy kind of uh, leading to?
1: Yeah, it's definitely inspiring to see so many people with overlapping interests and values in the same space. It feels really generative to me, both in terms of the actual like concrete actions that happen and also the like skill share or info share that happens when you have so many people with specific interests in the same place. Uh, I would like to see people bring more of this energy back to their, their home cities or wherever they travel to next. And I think something else that I would really like to see is for this energy to continue on through time so that people kind of stick with it. Like if you're doing the forest defense now, hopefully you still are in five years in some capacity so that we can continue to use and learn from these lessons instead of relearning the same things every five or 10 years.
2: Yeah, that's huge. That's a big thing. It's
1: just not having to reinvent the wheel
2: uh, every couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you feel like that's something that hasn't had to happen with this struggle?
1: I think that there are, Definitely lots of examples of people learning from prior campaigns, both uh, like those that have happened many years ago in other places like Lausanne. People bring that one up all the time. Um, And some of the people like have personal lived experience with other recent campaigns that have happened in the past decade. But I think that having more people who stay continuously involved and continuing to support the people who are involved, like make it sustainable for people to keep with the trouble as time goes on or as their lifestyle changes um, and accommodate that however possible. I think that would be really important to kind of maintaining this energy and maybe even being able to like grow the movement again.
2: Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you want to touch on or talk about?
1: I guess just thank you for talking about this. It's exciting to see more interest in this campaign and I hope that more people go check it out
0: they told me I should stay in my own lane what you doing here this ain't your you were born a different color you should be like all the others fuck you and the things you say
3: Here to talk about the counter protest to the straight pride rally in Modesto with uh, no hate in the valley.
2: Well, I think a lot of people when they think of straight pride, they think of the demonstration that took place a couple of years ago in Boston, and there was also somebody associated with the straight pride protest in Modesto that went viral a couple of years ago when they were at a city council meeting talking about how they were a peaceful racist group. I think that was sort of a Freudian slip, but. Tell us just where does this come from? this is happening in Modesto, which is east of the Bay Area in California. Tell us about the group that sort of started this whole thing.
3: Yeah, so there's uh, three main players in that group. There's uh, Don Grunman, who uh, is the person you were talking about that uh, referred to them as a peaceful racist group. He's been around since the 90s doing anti-abortion stuff primarily. And anti-gay stuff. He was with uh, a group called Operation Rescue back then, who's uh, responsible for, or they they basically like suggested that people should uh, kill abortion providers. So he's been around, kind of like most people, just kind of saw him as like this nut outsider person. But he over the past few years, he's connected with the other two people who are Ron and Melinda Mason. They are uh, also abortion rights activists. They're fundamentalist Christians. And recently, all three of them have been openly identifying as uh, white nationalists, spouting all kinds of anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric and everything. So uh, basically, it seems like over the past four years, you know, these guys have gone from weirdos that most people thought we should just ignore to creating all sorts of ties across the far right with uh, you know violent fascist gangs like the Proud Boys and American Guard and the Boogaloo Boys. Um, so that's, uh, that's a little bit of their background.
2: Yeah, there's an article on It's Going Down you can read that'll give you sort of a rundown of everything you just talked about, which was great. I think one of the most disturbing things is that these people, according to the article, have linked up with clergy in their area i know the article talked about them having connections in their group their straight pride group and their larger networks to people that are in charge of local churches and i believe there was one person that was like a former police chaplain so that's disconcerting that they're basically building a bridge between sort of the street fascists and uh local quote-unquote faith leaders and i know i think melinda mason is a active GOP organizer.
3: Yeah, and it's kind of created this sort of breeding ground in Modesto for far-right activity, and it's really, like, a lot of people might write it off as like, oh, it's just some weird Modesto problem, but this is spreading, you know, a lot of the Proud Boys that come out to Straight Pride that work with Don Grunman are the same people that have been attacking drag shows in the Bay Area, and they've been doing it with the support of Don Grunman. So it's a much larger issue than uh, some small town in the Central Valley.
2: How have people responded to this in the past? Because this will be the fourth year this has happened.
3: Yeah, you know, there's been a, a variety of responses. The, the first year, especially because uh, of how viral that uh, Freudian slip went, basically that happened while they were trying to petition for a permit for their event. And the general community kind of gathered together and was like, no, we don't want this, like, hate rally happening in our city. And ultimately, the permit was denied, but they went and did it anyways. You know, every, most, like, a, a large number of people came together and uh, basically were there to confront them face-to-face. Um, there was, you know, various groups with uh, various different goals, that were involved there. Like there were some groups that said we should ignore them. And there are other groups that sought to manage the protesters and kind of keep them away from any direct confrontation. But ultimately uh, I think the general will of the people won out and uh, they were able to essentially surround Grunman and his group and force them out of the area, which is pretty awesome. But unfortunately the last two years, uh, has received a much smaller response from our side, uh, due to various factors. Uh, the second year, you know, that's when, you know, COVID hit and we were also experiencing a lot of, uh, toxicity in the air from, uh, nearby forest fires. Um, so a lot of people didn't really want to go out and the local organizer organizations that initially called for protests, um, backed out of those calls because of those concerns. And that left a lot of people on the ground basically out there alone, while uh, that was also the same year that Grundman brought out the Proud Boys in force. It didn't really end well. Um, people had to basically evacuate the area, and it ended with a Proud Boy trying to run someone over with their truck. Um, luckily, uh, no one was hurt to my knowledge. Um, and then the most recent year, an attempt to kind of build up that same spirit as the first year where we all kind of gathered, have some speakers uh, and get people kind of pumped to, you know, maybe, maybe do something about this. Um, but generally that like most of the event ended up taking place away from the, uh, the counter demonstration. And that's, uh, that was until a small group of people, uh, probably like four young queer kids, went and tried to directly confront the Proud Boys and, uh, Grunman and the Masons. And they were surrounded by, uh, by Proud Boys and were, things were getting pretty heated. So a group of anti-fascists went over and tried to, you know, get them out of there. And the moment they stepped foot in the area, they were attacked and, uh, people did get hurt that year. So we're really hoping to change things this year. We want to build like a, pretty much like a mass resistance against this and we're not we're taking a different approach from last year we're not gonna try to do it somewhere else and then bring it we're bringing it straight to them this year i think that that will also get a lot of people excited who maybe don't think uh hiding away and doing stuff somewhere else uh is very enticing so
2: and how have the police responded to all this
3: uh, mostly with indifference. Uh, the first year, they kind of like stood in a line in between uh, the, the two groups. Uh, the second year, they took an entirely hands-off approach and uh, saying that they didn't want to turn this into, into an anti-police thing. And, you know, that basically left uh, the entire area open for uh, Proud Boy attacks, especially because they actually did do a little bit of policing but it was mostly making sure that people on our side you know didn't have anything to defend ourselves with so the then the most recent year was also pretty hands-off until the brawl broke out actually two proud boys were arrested only after you know one of them was like viciously beating someone in in the middle of a of a parking lot and uh right in front of a cop it's like he pretty much has no choice but to arrest this guy and then the other one uh jeffrey perrine proud boy uh wouldn't basically just wouldn't shut his mouth for 30 minutes when the police told everyone to leave and he just kept going off until they arrested him so
2: and jeffrey perrine just to be clear is like a white nationalist was actually kicked out of the sacramento republican chapter uh, in part because of the videos that us and other anti-fascist and anarchist accounts were sharing where he was quoted as saying that we need to smash the heads of migrant workers against the concrete to murder them that are coming into the United States. Yeah, and this he was kicked out because of that. Uh, but yeah, he's a total anti-Semite white nationalist. He's actually running for school board in a district, I think, around Sacramento right now, which is horrific. I, mean, I don't think he's gonna win, but definitely trying to insert themselves in local politics for sure. Definitely. Well, you mentioned the police, but my understanding is that they helped push a series of, uh, ordinances that directly aimed at specifically anti-fascists bringing essentially defensive items.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they banned, uh, things like helmets, body armor, gas masks, uh, umbrellas. They technically even banned masks, but I think that, uh, because of COVID and everything, they can't, that's not really enforceable. But, um, I mean, generally, I don't know if any of it is enforceable. Ultimately, uh, it, it seems like it's a pretty clear violation of, uh, our first amendment rights, but we don't know yet. <laughs> Cause, uh, no one's uh, been cited yet, but they have like told people, go take that back to your car, etc. Um, yeah. And they, they, they basically brought th- these, uh, restrictions to the city council in modesto and uh, showed like a bunch of pictures of anti-fascists in berkeley as like evidence for why they should ban these items and of course when it comes to enforcement and uh telling people to put things away they're not they hardly even bother with the right it's definitely designed to target people on our side
2: well, if people want to get involved, uh, tell us more about the demonstration itself.
3: So uh, we're going to be meeting at Planned Parenthood in Modesto on McHenry Road at 11 o'clock. Uh, the idea is to hold that space because that's where they hold their rally. We want to get there before them and make sure they can't get in and basically just mess up their rally. Like They can't have their rally. Maybe they'll try to do it somewhere else, but ultimately that's a win for us because – we took their space, so that is our main goal. And that, and if they do show up, drowning out anything that they have to say with loud noises. That's August twenty seventh. That it's happening this year at eleven o'clock. Be great to have as many people possible come out.
2: And where should people go to get more information? Yeah,
3: so you can go to uh, No Hate in the Valley. That's hate spelled H uh, eight dot, no blogs dot com. and uh, you'll find you know uh, some articles that we've written. There's uh there's flyers and uh, lots of information. Pretty much all you need to know, everything is on that uh on that website.
2: Awesome. Well, anything else?
3: I hope to see y'all out there.
4: Congressman, career politician, strong fight across the envelope with all of our convictions. It only took a few hours for his peers To find him guilty in a trousing fair. A wobble crit worker has no place amongst the living. My funny, if I could choose to ashes it would do. For what you wish, who is wrong and who is righteous? And what was stolen from us, we will replace. But with the head on the body, we feast. Who is wrong and who is righteous? It'll never be our own decision. This heart from beating Every word he wrote a smoky song We are still singing My body if I could choose To ashes it reduce, And let some breezes blow To where some flowers grow Perhaps some fading flower then Will come to life and bloom again Take a notion They can stop all speeding trains Every ship upon the oceans They can tie with mighty chains Every will in the creation Every mine in every mill and armies of all nations Will it all come and stand still?
2: Once again, we're back for another week. We're going to try to switch up things a little bit here on This Is America. We're going to be hitting some headlines and talking about some stories and just quickly going over the news a little bit before we kind of get into the stuff that we really sort of tease out and talk about in depth and digest just so we can get a more holistic look at things that are going on because there's so much happening. We don't really want to miss any of it and i feel like some of the stories that have been happening we've kind of like let fall by the wayside so we're going to just get into a couple new stories and then talk about the big story of the day which of course is the fbi raiding mar-a-lago which apparently is a beautiful home and they did go in the safe which of course the who could have ever thought the you know, law enforcement would ever do that. I mean, oh my Lord. But just to kind of get us started off, we want to talk about COVID. And now we have this thing called monkeypox. We're in a situation in the United States right now where over 500 people every day are continuing to die of COVID-19. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of left the news cycle. And the Biden administration and the CDC have endorsed this, forever covid policy this is after COVID, this is after biden now has gotten covid twice and i think actually his wife has just gotten it two yep so they're turning away from mandates testing essentially providing services for people i don't know if you, people remember we were talking about this when the Omicron variant hit uh back in the spring or early winter and and they kind of did this half-hearted thing where they said like, oh, we're going to have more vaccines out, but they were also cutting at the same time the money for the resources for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This also coincides with the return to school. And remember a couple months ago when all the kids were walking out demanding, you know, testing demanded. PPE demanding masks I mean this was a real thing a lot of them were demanding that schools be closed down because they didn't want to go back to school they didn't want to actually risk getting infected with Omicron and then bringing it back to their parents which is a very real threat and actually a lot of those struggles were successful in getting some of those demands met but I mean now we're back in the same situation because summer is coming to a close at least for school kids and they're going back to school so and we're still in the situation where COVID is spreading 500 people a day are dying, and a lot of people are being hit with what's being called long COVID. So essentially, symptoms related to COVID-19 that last uh, long past your quote-unquote over it. As we've talked about kind of like ad nauseum on this show, there's sort of this false dichotomy between, you know, shut up and get your vaccine and go back to work and don't get your vaccine, wearing a mask is stupid, just go back to work and maybe you'll die. (laughs) Sort of the same thing. As Biden is talking about, hey, everybody's going to get COVID. It's just going to happen. You know, we can't really engage in lockdowns or any of this stuff. Everybody's just got to accept that it's just going to spread throughout the population. I mean, the fact that some that a lot of people are going to end up with long COVID is a very real possibility. And, And the state has essentially given up on its response because to actually respond to this would mean marshalling its forces towards building health infrastructure and taking care of people, which of course it doesn't want to do. You
5: know, we've we've talked on this show a number of times about some of the paradoxes of uh, the COVID age, right? But one of those paradoxes being this sort of tension between um, governments sort of pumping money into the economy as subsidy and governments kind of giving up on subsidies, right? But both of those approaches assume the continuation of capitalism, right? And I think that this is kind of one of the elements of this we haven't really touched on, at least in a, little w- in a little bit, but both of those approaches, whether or not we're going to focus on mitigating inflation or whether or not they're going to focus on subsidizing the economy, both of those considerations are primarily economic. Um, neither of those considerations are primarily based on public health. And both of those considerations live at the core of the U.S. government's response to this. And so when we're looking at COVID and governmental responses to COVID, I don't think it's as easy as just saying governments want us to do this. So therefore, if we want to be free, we don't do what governments say. I think that that's kind of an ill-informed approach. It's also equally ill-informed to just be like, we are going to listen to literally everything that is said by a person in authority. Right. But what we're looking at right now is we're looking at a moment in which the motivations behind the policies can be seen very clearly. And those motivations right now, at this point in time, are not about politics and reelection necessarily, although that's definitely part of it. But right now, this is about saving capitalism from itself. Right. Trying to use this kind of return to normality as a way to resolve the paradox, because in reality, the only way to resolve the economic paradox of the COVID age is to end the COVID age. But they can't do that. And so instead, what's happening is this almost it's almost a simulation of what happens at the end of a pandemic. But in our case, the pandemic's still occurring. Uh, but what they're doing is they're trying to resolve this paradox within capitalism by just. Making it seem like COVID has gone away. I mean, this is the return to normality strategy that I think we've been seeing the Biden administration inch up to. And it, they're now just fully embracing this um, as the only way that they can sort of save the economy from itself.
2: We've got a couple ecological stories we want to talk about. A new study from Swedish researchers contends that rainwater is now not safe to drink. And they found in this new research that's reported in a lot of different outlets that there is an unsafe amount of forever chemicals and toxins that exceed current guidelines. And what's really sad is that, you know, a lot of people all over the world depend on rainwater, and especially out of the so-called developed first world. And because of industrial capitalism and its increasing production, you know, these people are now, and all of us too, are being exposed to rainwater that is apparently now not safe to drink, which is going to impact a lot of people's lives.
5: Yeah, at the same time that we're having, and we'll we'll talk about this in a second, simultaneously flooding and drought. I think it seemed for a lot of us many years ago that resource wars were a thing of the future. Uh, We're there now, Um, and in fact have been there for some time. Um, That there's really good arguments to be made that things like Some of the motivation for, like, the Syrian uprising, for example, had to do with droughts in farming areas and the failure of government response to droughts, right? So, I mean, we're already watching resource shortages start outside of fossil fuels, right? So, like, other resources outside of fossil fuels, we're watching those shortages already lead to increasingly acute conflict. And so this is definitely something, when we can no longer harvest rainwater, to mitigate the shortage of, you know, river water or, you know, large bodies of standing fresh water, all of a sudden those resource shortages become very, very, very obvious.
2: Right, yeah. What good is prepping if you can't, you know, the rainwater you're collecting is going to kill you? It's all poisoned, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, as you said, you mentioned flooding. According to The Guardian, this is from an article. Shout out to William C. Anderson shared this. In an 11-day span, the U.S. experienced at least four flooding events that would normally be expected once every 1,000 years. Again, this is from The Guardian, or have a 0.1% chance of happening any given year. Scientists say extreme rainfall spurred by climate breakdown is rendering many of these historical norms obsolete. I'm sure a lot of people saw that there was flooding in places like Appalachia, there was also a lot of flooding that happened, and I heard like Death Valley had a flash uh, flash flood recently, which of course yeah. is not out of the norm, but like all these things put together at the same time, as they said is you know extremely not normal, and again shows the the degree in which this civilization is not only causing climate change but also the infrastructure that we have in place is totally not prepared I mean a lot of the a lot of the places that were hit by flooding were just, you know, totally washed away. And these areas are, of course, not used to these things happening all the time. So when they do hit, it's just a massive, massive blow to these communities. And shout out to the grassroots mutual aid organizing that's happening on the ground. Places like Kentucky and other spots. I know in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, there is an autonomous center there that does a lot of mutual aid organizing. There's some posts on it's going down about it, um, but they're actually trying to move because their space was recently flooded. They've got to get a new space. So if you can support the organizing that's going on, uh, support groups like Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. They're doing a lot of amazing stuff, but Mm -hmm. this is definitely the new normal, unfortunately.
5: One of the the discussions that we have where I live a lot um, is how we sort of come to embrace the idea of, a constancy of disaster. Um, now, where I live, disasters are social and economic a lot of the time. Um, that a lot of the tragedy emerges from, you know, police violence and the failures of capitalism and, and things like this. But um, those are no less disasters than hurricanes, floods, those kinds of things. And so, what does it look like for us to reframe what we're doing um, around the idea, around the reality? that we live in a constant crisis, right? Not intermittent crises with periods in between. But what's happened at this point for economic and ecological and political reasons, the gaps between sort of identifiable moments of acute crisis have kind of disappeared. And we're in this sort of constant process of sort of looking at collapse and looking at the degradation of the planet and looking at the sort of you know implosion of the American political project and all of that shouldn't be a secondary concern. That should be what informs a lot of our political approaches because that is the reality that we do live in today.
2: Yeah, and continuing on with talking about water in our last story here, so-called Western states in the U.S. must figure out how to use 15% less water. This is from another report in The Guardian where it said severe water cuts were announced on Tuesday to Western states in the grip of a severe mega drought that has dropped levels of the country's largest two reservoirs to record lows. Reservoir levels have been dropping for years due to a 22-year drought worsened by climate emergency and overuse of the river. So this is going to hit states like California and a couple other western states. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because there are so many different interests at Mm -hmm. play here. You have residents... And, of course, you know, people use a lot less water than, say, corporations and governments. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. you also have, like, city governments. You have agricultural interest, which, you know, if you go to agricultural areas, I mean, the fight over water is big and it's real. And it's yeah. presented to the public sort of like, you know, no farms, no food is a common slogan, which, I mean, sounds reasonable. Yes, <laughs> this is where food comes from. You know, be great if you didn't uh, have this slave labor relationship between, you know, an indentured second class of citizens that aren't even citizens, you know, migrant farm workers, which are brutally exploited. There's actually a march happening right now across California by the United Farm Workers to demand uh, justice and laws be passed to allow them to unionize. But beyond that, I mean, a lot of the water that's used is to grow cash crops like nuts and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, which are extremely water intensive. I think for every cashew, it's like, was like one or two gallons of water something like that something I mean, like that yeah you know, like and this is something that's like sold on the international market so another thing to point out is like on the podcast we've talked before about how far right groups like the bundies have inserted themselves into water rights struggles trying to push back against uh native tribes and other groups. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in this, because I can totally see you know, a far-right struggle developing around this and some people backing it.
5: Yeah, well, as we were, we were talking about a little bit of this before we started recording today, but if you look back at the history of the Comitatus movement... Um, which you know, it's I think I would argue difficult to understand the contemporary far right without understanding the Comitatus movement, but Comitatus really it emerged from the Dakotas and sort of the upper Great plains. But one of its first confrontations with the state uh, was was actually on a farm in central California. and that confrontation was based on an already existing tense environment that was due to limitations in water access for farmers based on water shortages and United Farm Workers organizers trying to organize migrant workers on their farms. And they wanted the ability to get however much water they wanted and kick the union organizers off. And so what they did was they refused to allow uh, sheriff's deputies onto the land to, you know, sort of get a look at how much water they were using and whether or not they were preventing union organizers from getting on the farm. And that started a shootout. This is not something that could happen. It's something that did happen and is happening. Um, I don't think, I think it's hard for a lot of us that live in cities or, you know, more densely populated parts of the country to imagine really severe resource shortages like that to the point where there's just not water. Um, but that is a reality for a lot of people. And that reality has already caused social tension, social conflict, and and will continue to do so. So just as we're starting to imagine sort of what it looks like to organize in constant crisis, we have to be thinking about water shortages as as part of that, as part of an already existing crisis.
2: All right, now for some funny stuff. (laughs) So as you know, Trump supporters have been going batshit over... Trump being raided by the FBI. Trevor Noah recently pointed out it's like the realization like, "Oh, like prisons they can be for us too?" That's <laughs> it can work it can work for rich and powerful people too. Wow. Hmm. So there's been kind of a sporadic far-right protests uh across the country. I you know there was one in Phoenix. Arizona, it looked like they had maybe a couple dozen people, and there was a couple other smaller protests outside the FBI building. There's been a couple people that have been arrested for making threats online, and there's of course been this person in Ohio that was arrested for trying to attack an FBI field office. The funny thing that people may have missed is that, so this person was somebody that posted on Truth Social, which is Trump's uh, social media platform. Talking about how they were going to kill FBI agents. But then he he goes down to the FBI field office and he has a rifle on his shoulder. But then he brings a nail gun. And he posted on Truth Social saying, like, I'm going to bring a nail gun because the glass is bulletproof. Therefore, insinuating that the nail gun could therefore get through the glass because it's made out of nails, not bullets, of course. Which is... And the fact that he posted it, like, thinking out, like, let me think through this here. Let me think through my terrorism. He died in a shootout shortly afterwards. Yeah. Too bad he didn't think that through. It, it is interesting, you know, we were talking about this before that, uh, again, it's this thing where there's, like, there's a bunch of people talking this mess online. Like, I saw one feed, like, they're doing these shorts now on YouTube, but people, like, made, like, a whole list of them. It's like, Five thousand men just talking into the camera for like five seconds about how they're going to go to war and all this stuff. And it's just like all these people are full of shit largely. I mean, obviously they're, you know, their position is, I believe them that they think this, but they're just fronting, you know, yes. they're just talking mess and, but this person wasn't and they went out and did something and we could see a lot of other things that happened like this. I remember. This is almost kind of forgotten in the winds of time now. But remember, Cesar Sayoc, you know the guy that lived. Oh in, yeah, the guy oh. that lived in the van that had like all the Trump stuff all over his van, and he was like sending like crappy bombs to like everybody. I mean these these people are real. Like there have been MAGA terrorists. It's interesting that this hasn't manifested into like a J six moment. It seems like they really need that sort of massaging and corralling. Mm-hmm by different forces and stuff like that. Like they're obviously well, not this kind of like movement in the sense of like they're getting together for meetings and stuff. Like they're either kind of like hanging out at Trump events, sort of like it's a rock concert or they have to be kind of cajoled and pushed into certain events like uh J J six or something like that. Yeah. Without the
5: backing of an entire cable news network, they would have almost nothing. I mean like really what's, what's fascinating about the far right, in America today is how superficial it actually is, right? I mean, the the values that they espouse have a long, long tail in American history. Um, but on the level of actually organizing something persistent that has an actual life on the ground and isn't just a bunch of people just threatening other people on the Internet, they haven't really built a lot. And so what they're able to do is they're able to survive through sort of perpetuating this messaging of you know constant outrage and sort of constant threats like constant existential threat and they're able to kind of keep people moving in that direction the reality is is that once that narrative slows down if that narrative slows down there's not a lot left and so for someone like this who, who did something like this it's not like they're working with an organization of people no right they're not. They're working on their own. It's not like they've got people backing them up. Like this person's going to go to prison for a very long time.
2: Well, he's this dead. Person's
5: dead. But a, yeah. a lot of the other people who have done this stuff are going to go to prison for a really long time and not have support no. and not have people checking up on them because there is no infrastructure for that in the far right at all. We're going to see more of this, but unlike in the '90s, where someone like McVeigh or um, Terry Nichols had connections to the militia movement. Um, the people that we're seeing do
2: this stuff don't necessarily. Right. They're just folks online that are just getting angry and angrier. And what's fascinating yeah. too is that we were talking before about how like there was going to be some sort of protest on DC that the far right media kind of seized on and mm-hmm. tried to make it into this thing. Like this is going to be big and no one showed up. Yeah. And in fact, there seemed to be this kind of narrative that like, if you did go to these things, you are a fed or some like mm-hmm, psyops mm-hmm. or something. So it's weird that like on one hand they rely on pumping their base up with fear and disinformation that causes people to react in a certain way. But at the same time, they're also trying to paint those that do go that far as some sort of like false flag, yes, you know, crisis act or whatever. So it's sort of this weird uh, duality that's, very strange well and it is with the right wing in
5: general i mean if you if you look at and and kathleen blue really gets into this in uh, a book called bring the war home which is really good but one of the points she makes is that uh, you look at people like tom metzger right um or even david duke to a degree um or Louis beam like these kind of 70s 80s kind of clan neo-nazi types um and they were serious about overthrowing the US government. Like they were absolutely serious about that, but they were doing that in their own narrative in service of what they viewed as the ideal of the American political project, right? And so you have this tension in which these people are willing to attack the state to save it from itself. Um, that's really what we're kind of watching here. And it's the phenomena is really similar to. The phenomena around the voting narratives that you saw play out in the Republican party where, um, well, all of a sudden, why would any Republican show up to vote if everything's just rigged? What's the point? Right. And they've lost elections because of that. Um, this is now creating this much deeper sort of problem here where now they have to simultaneously be talking about the thin blue line and also how everyone around them's a fed how do you square that circle you you can't really you can't simultaneously love the state and be under threat by it all the time right um it also indicates the level of mistrust that's building up in the right wing right now the fact that you know well-known organizers could call for a thing in dc in direct response to something that a lot of the right wing was angry about and in response to that call get called feds um that's was something that we saw begin in the lead up to January 6th. We like more and more as you watch videos kind of in that lead up, you started seeing people accusing other people of being feds, but it was really just starting right around then. Um, now it's like full blown, right? There's full blown paranoia on the far right. Um, and everyone thinks everyone's a fed. And so what we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing like what happened in Cincinnati was one of the outgrowths of these paradoxes, right? Like, one of the effects of a paradox like that is some people end up just getting kicked out, lost, without really anywhere to go, and they're angry and they do something like this because the narrative has cut off every other option for them, right? They don't have the ability to organize with people because everyone's a fed. Um, So now they have to act alone, right? The more and more and more that we see that level of suspicion build up on the right wing, the more we're going to see things like this happen. Uh, Because it becomes the only avenue for people.
2: Well, our last story in the funny section here. (laughs) A company that's been pumping out a steady stream of crappy pro-MAGA and far-right nonsense is in trouble because they've been ripping out the made-in-China tags (laughs) on their clothing and replacing them with made-in-the-USA ones. (sighs) Here's one article that wrote an apparel company known for inflammatory clothing championing the second amendment and Donald Trump has been fined after they falsely claimed it's imported apparel is made in the United States, Utah based lions, not cheap. And I saw a picture of the owner. looks like a taller version of Joe Biggs from the proud boys was slapped with a $211,000 fine after the company removed made in China tags, replacing them with made in the USA ones. Here's here's what I would love to be, you know, a fly in the room of the meeting in which the workers are directed (laughs) to do this. Because you know that the people that work there are probably all, like, down with the message and, like, chuds and stuff. But, like, imagine being told for management, hey, I'd like you to rip off all the Made in China tags and replace them with Made in the USA ones. Because those are small tags. This is, like, something that requires some finesse. and the fact that everybody just kind of went with that <clears throat> that's hilarious, you know.
5: Yeah, it's so illustrative of the right wing, right? I mean, yeah. what else can you really say? It's like they built something entirely superficial to sort of signal a specific politics and it was all uh, it was it was all a fiction, right?
2: Yeah, it reminds it, me yeah. of like Bannon being arrested on, like, a Chinese-owned yacht for yeah. defrauding people that, like, donated to the Build the Wall campaign, and he's really been pocketing the money. It's like, yes, obviously, at a certain point, these people are ideologically committed, but mm-hmm. their view of the people that support them is so low, and they have yes. no problem with just grifting these people. Uh, you just have to wonder, like, how ideologically committed are they because they're just stealing money from folks and lying to them.
5: Yeah. That world of like moneyed official politics, which, you know, I, one of the ironies of the kind of MAGA political space is that they lionize people like Steve Bannon, who is absolutely a creature of the DC political culture, right? Like guy owns a house in Georgetown, you know, it's, it's not like he's outside of that in any kind of way. He would not be who he is without that world.
2: Ranting about globalists and he used to work at Goldman Sachs and he's like still exactly. getting money from all those people. Yeah.
5: Exactly. And so one of the things you see in that world, um, and and a person like Cassidy Hutchinson, who who uh testified for the January Sixth Committee, is kind of a classic example of this. Um DC is really run by mid-20s something. I mean, it's it's kind of shocking to say, but the reality is, is that a lot of the people reading and writing legislation are under 30 years old um, and they're usually doing internships or they're low level staffers. And in that world, it's not like you're making a lot of money. Um, you're barely scraping by. There is a lot of money to be made in politics, though. And so what happens is that you sort of follow the political winds in order to keep your head above water financially, because that's what you've chosen to do as a career not just as a political project, but eventually when you start to make the connections, the real money starts to come in. And so it becomes this kind of squishy environment where it's pretty normal for people to work with people that they fundamentally completely disagree with as long as that person's writing them a paycheck. There's not a lot of deep ideological commitment in this world. The deep ideological commitments in american political culture is not about policy positions generally it's about having an ideological commitment to the continuation of capital and at least for the democrats the continuation of liberal democracy right um there's kind of this sort of meta politics that they're really invested in but on the specific they can i mean people in that world can be incredibly flexible when it comes to politics, if money gets involved, incredibly flexible. There's a long history of that. Well, and there's a, a recent book that came out is written by a former Republican strategist named Tim Miller. The, the book is called We Did It. What it's really I, I recently finished it. What it's really about is about the period before Donald Trump, right? The, the period of time between the mid 90s and late 90s and and now, like 2016, what happened in conservative politics that allowed for someone like Donald Trump to, to rise. And the argument that's made in this book is essentially what happened is that the idea that you were working for principles as opposed to power disappeared. And that working for the RNC during that period of time meant that you were encouraged to raise as much money as possible, regardless of what you had to tell people to do it. Right. And we've, we've seen this in, in, specifically conservative politics in the U.S., where it's gotten um, almost entirely negative, it's gotten entirely reactionary, and it's gotten entirely hyperbolic. And that has led to this kind of trail into just over-conspiracy theories. For the conservative movement, they don't care. It doesn't matter to them. Because at the end of the day, I mean, we could say this about liberals too, but with the conservative movement, they have a very specific, I mean, this is why Mike Cernovich is not a nihilist. I mean, Mike Cernovich believes in all kinds of stuff very, very, very firmly, including race politics and all kinds of other things, right? And you can say that about the Republican Party as well. They people there do believe things. But when it comes down to their actual political actions, um, they've started to think about those things as purely instrumental. Um, it's about holding out of power because you have these ideas that you want to impose on people and you need power to do that. And so if you have to compromise your ideas to get the power to impose your ideas, then that's what you do. And that's become a common mentality in the conservative movement. Um, Part of the reason that liberals, especially in a context like Congress fail so much to check what the conservative movement's doing is at least a lot of liberals still believe in principles they might be the wrong principles, but they believe in them, a lot of them. And a lot of liberals are not willing to compromise their ideas for political effectiveness. Um, and so they get steamrolled <laughs> all the time by a group of people who is willing to entirely sideline any concept of principle for, you know, the, the question of political effectiveness and power. And that's really what we see with these grips. I mean, like, that's really what's happening here. Money just happens to be part of the mechanism.
2: All right, well, let's move forward here and start talking about our main topic of tonight: the Trump raid on Mar-a-Lago, and yeah. we're just going to get into it. Uh, yeah, this is something that's unprecedented. Uh, this it's been compared to Watergate, but it's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the FBI raided the home of a former president. This is something that hasn't happened before. Uh, as we've already talked about, there are obviously Trump supporters that are very upset, even willing to engage in armed acts of terrorism against the FBI in retribution for this uh, with nail guns. And we're going to talk about essentially what does this mean? What is the FBI looking for when they carried out this raid? And as always you know, what's going to happen because of this investigation, if anything. So just to start off, break down what happened with the raid and what were they looking for and why is this such a big deal? I think we all know or
5: learned throughout the Trump years that Donald Trump really sucked at keeping records, generally, right? Like he'd tear a piece of paper up, he'd throw stuff in the trash, he'd flush it down the toilet, like whatever. His his ability to, to conform with, federal laws around records, maintenance and classification uh, just wasn't there. I mean, one of one of the classic examples is um, there have been a failed ballistic missile test in Iran. And Trump had gotten his hands on classified satellite imagery of the launch pad from that failed test and put it on the Internet. I mean, like, so there's stuff like this. Right. And this concern has kind of existed for a long time. When he left office, you know, presidents take stuff, right? It's kind of a weird tradition that presidents steal things from the White House when they leave. Um, Usually it's something superficial, like a set of china or some silverware or a statue, like a small statue or something like that, just some memento. Trump took a lot of stuff. And part of what he took was the number has fluctuated depending on what article you're reading, somewhere between one and four dozen legal boxes full of documents. A lot of those documents were classified documents. Now, we don't know what documents they were, but we know that they were uh, not public record, right? So right after he left office, pretty quickly afterwards, the Department of Justice started a process of talking to his attorneys and trying to get some of those records back, trying to get all those records back. And at various points, Trump's lawyers had shown up with some of those boxes and given them to the FBI. But the FBI knew somehow that that wasn't all the documents. And they knew that Donald Trump was keeping some of those documents in a personal safe, right at Mar-a-Lago. Now, the only way that they would know that is if they had, An informant inside of Trump's inner circle telling them this, right? Which, given some of the January 6th investigation stuff, would not surprise me at all that someone in Trump's inner circle cut a deal and is informing on him to the FBI. That would not, that would not surprise me at all. So the FBI finds out that he has classified information and finds out that said classified information was either in a random storage room in the basement of Mar-a-Lago that didn't require a key to get into. You just, as long as you got into the basement, you just get into the room. Um, or they were kept in this personal safe. So the feds raided the, the property when he wasn't there. Um, they left apparently with a number of boxes full of stuff. They did raid the safe, according to Trump, um, which, you know, as you pointed out, as Trevor Noah was saying, um, it's really surprising that these people are surprised that this is what an FBI raid looks like. <laughs> you know, they're like freaking out. They're like, they opened my safe. Oh my God. They open. It's like, dude, that's what happens during an FBI raid. Like that, that is what happens. You're lucky. They didn't kick your door down. Right. Um,
2: so or kill you are. or sh- shoot your
5: dogs or. Right. Destroy all your stuff. Your windows. Yeah. Come at you with an armored personnel carrier, you know, like any of the other things that happen during house raids. Um, yeah, none of that happened, right? So this was a raid, quote unquote, in the sense that the FBI went into a place with a warrant, right? But it was not a raid in the sense that I think people often think of raids, which is doors getting kicked down, concussion grenades, guys with guns, like none of that was happening. It was a very cordial people in their FBI windbreakers taking documents out of a building kind of situation. But that's sort of where we're at. We're not sure what they got. There's a lot of rumors out there right now. Uh, we're not sure who gave what information to them that got them the warrants. Um, so all we really, really know is that they went to Mar-a-Lago and they left with some documents and that this has to do um, with both the Presidential Records Act and potentially the Espionage Act, depending on what documents were taken.
2: So we don't have to spend too much time on this next question because we've already gone over a little bit, but how has Trump and the Republicans responded to this? I mean, they basically made this out to be, of course, the worst thing ever. This has never happened before. This is unprecedented. You know, this is the deep state. It's a conspiracy. Trump said, you know, this is coming from the radical far-left Democrats. I I guess if there's one thing that you could pick out from, you know, what they've been saying that we could actually address is they're saying that... The Department of Justice has been weaponized, which, of course, is hilarious. I mean, this is literally a man that said, like, hey, that construction worker that in self-defense in Portland shot and killed a member of a far-right street gang, uh, yeah, go murder that guy. Right. I'm talking You're about right. Michael Reinhall. So I mean, you want to yeah. talk about obviously the Department of Justice being weaponized. And if I remember hmm <laughs> hm uh Chad Wolf, uh yeah, remember that whole thing where they're like, you know what, everybody uh, that works here, we're just not gonna talk about the neo Nazis and the uh, yeah. you know, the far right murdering everybody. But we do want you to talk about the anarchists and the Antifa. That's what we're gonna focus on. Right. So right. it's like this noise about weaponizing, you know the justice departments, all this stuff. I mean, do we really have to go over this? But, but break down their response.
5: Yeah. So, uh, collective freak out is probably the right words. Um, they lost it, lost it and lost it in like the best way possible in that some of them are just, you know, really on this, like, uh, we need to investigate the FBI. We have to turn the Department of Justice against itself, blah, 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 blah. You know, and they're, they're using this kind of Biden's weaponizing the DOJ sort of line, which is, is patently absurd. But I think the <laughs> more interesting part of this is the like Marjorie Taylor Greene level response, which is the defund the FBI response, <laughs> which is ironic on so many levels. Um, but just this idea that. The right wing is gonna go after the FBI um, is not only fascinating, um, and definitely something that would negatively impact the FBI, um, but is also on a lot of levels this sort of, I mean, very obviously their they're sort of acting out their response, right? It's sort of overblown on purpose. They're not going to defund the FBI. They're not going to cut funding to the FBI. What they're going to do is they're going to set the stage for the midterms. They're going to use this as a line in the 2024 election. They're going to use this as a way to like keep the outrage machine running if they're able to take over the House of Representatives. They'll do investigations and stuff, and none of it will ever lead to anything. But right-wing politics isn't about it leading to anything anymore. It's about keeping the outreach machine moving, keeping the inertia going. Um, this is incredibly effective on that level, incredibly effective. And the Republicans are doing this weird thing where they're sort of very, very, very effectively leveraging that, but at the same time, they're leveraging that by undermining the legitimacy of the federal government that they themselves are trying to gain control of. Um, the long-term effects of that strategy of delegitimizing the federal state um could be relatively significant. Uh, you know, we already talked about Republicans not voting and Republicans sort of going lone wolf on stuff. Um, but the long-term effect of this is really, you know, the thin blue line people stop being thin blue line people. Um, and the people that sort of were rapidly in support of the national security state won't be maybe the next time around. And there is this element in which their response is incredibly short-sighted. Um But yeah, they're kind of freaking out over, again, what was a pretty mild FBI raid as FBI raids go.
2: Yeah, I, I always love the response they have. Where anytime this happens, they're like, well, this is really about you because they want to come after you next. Like, if they can do this to a a corrupt president that, uh, you know, doesn't pay his taxes and tries to overthrow the government, then who is safe among us? You know?
5: I know. It's persecution, obviously, when you take classified documents to your house. Like, who would get their house raided over that except. Every single person that's ever been charged under the espionage act, right?
2: What's so next? Even, Are they going to ask him what he did with Jeffrey Epstein? I mean, come on. Where does it I end?
5: Mean, keep in mind, Donald Trump, when he was in office, very specifically asked for the FBI to go after leakers and asked for the FBI to go after people who sort of leak documents or talk to the press or something like that. Most of the time what they were leaking wasn't even classified. And he was like, I want the FBI and the Department of Justice to prosecute this at the greatest extent of the law. And here he is taking documents. Home. I mean, the, it, it's it shouldn't be surprising that Donald Trump is a hypocrite. Right, uh, right? But it is like the overtness of the hypocrisy in this situation is just staggering.
2: Like, right. Absolutely staggering. Well, you mentioned documents. So what exactly was the FBI looking for in the raid? The Washington Post reported that the documents included super undeclassifiable info on nuclear materials to remind people supposedly this was just like what it in bathrooms and stuff just like yeah kind of like crappily Fire. placed around mar-a-lago which is like a hotel that you can go to um mm-hmm. so how much could this in theory get trump in trouble there's talk about him violating the espionage act or the presidential records act in theory this could bar him from Running in the next election. So just yeah. talk about, you know, supposedly what exactly are the documents that they're looking for? And what could this possibly mean for Trump? If that's true.
5: What we have heard are kind of two things, right? And again, we don't know any of this, but what we've heard are kind of two things. Um, got two lines that get repeated. The first is the sort of line about nuclear material, right? Um, that could be any number of things. Right. That could be designs for weapons. That could be scientific research. That could be the codes. That could be anything. Right. Um, nuclear material, like nuclear weapons based information is like super undeclassifiable. Um, in, in almost every case and is heavily, 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 heavily limited as far as who's allowed to see it. Um, but the other bits of information that have been hinted at are Trump taking documents that he might have felt would have been useful to him personally going forward. So there was, there have been numerous reports of inside sources talking about were actually things like documents about the Russian investigation or documents about Hillary Clinton or documents about X, Y, or Z person within the federal government. And, the, the sources, if they're to be believed, um, were essentially saying that he took some of those things for posterity's sake, right? Just he wanted them. He thought that they were cool. He took some of that stuff because he wanted to be able to blackmail people. And then he took some of that stuff as a way to, quote, exonerate himself. That, you know, according to one of the sources, he read these documents and went, oh, my God, this totally exonerates me because he completely misread the documents and took them with him. So he could sort of preserve a legacy. Right. And maybe use them in 2024 when he runs again. Um, if that is true, if any of that is true, um, it's relatively disturbing that he took U.S. government intelligence products home with him for the purposes of blackmail um, or the purposes of advancing his political career in the future. Um, that would be unprecedented. That would be something that, as far as we know, no other American president has ever done. Um, and would be so far over the line of what would, is acceptable under the Presidential Records Act. And depending on what the documents are acceptable under the Espionage Act, that, you know, any classified data that he took is a felony, right? A federal felony, a serious one. Just to give you all that are listening to this some context, Edward Snowden is living in Russia to avoid coming back to the United States to face Espionage Act charges, right? If they're able to extradite effectively Julian Assange to the United States, that's what he will be charged under the Espionage Act, right? Um, Chelsea Manning they also reality was... winner under the Espionage Act. Chelsea Manning, right? So, like, there's a lot of people that have been charged under the Espionage Act in the United States that were mid to low level you know, military or intelligence personnel and not the president of the United States. They, they tried to use the Espionage Act um, in in the 1960s and 70s against people who were leaking documents. Right. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg, they were threatening to prosecute under the Espionage Act. So, like, this is a tool that gets used a lot by the Department of Justice as a way to sort of enforce classification of documents. Um, now, Trump, of course, is making the ridiculous claim that, well, if he's president or was. And so he could declassify anything he wants, which, though technically true, there is a process for that. You can't just, like, take the nuclear codes and put them on Twitter, right? There is a process for that that you have to go through to sanitize documents and have, you know, individual bits of information sort of redacted from documents before they can be released publicly if they were classified prior to that. He didn't do any of that. So, I mean, we'll see. We'll see.
2: Let's talk about what does this say about the tensions at play within the state and the various factions? Because we were talking about before the show, we should really be wary of people on the right and the left basically saying, oh, this is some deep 4D chess. You know, we were reading some socialist website that was talking about how this is really to stop Trump from like coming to power. So the deep state and the Democrats can go after Russia and China.
5: Yeah, I think I think there's a number of things going on here. And conspiracies amongst different elements of the federal government are not any of them. Um, just to, just to make it abundantly clear, if the federal government was going to act maliciously to take out Donald Trump, it wouldn't be that he took documents home. That wouldn't be the charge. Um, they would have found something that would have actually damaged his integrity and not turned him into a martyr, which is what happened here. Um, instead, what we're seeing is we're watching an incredibly cautious attorney general, Merrick Garland, who has a very, very, very long history of being incredibly cautious with the things he does, especially if the um the sort of reputation of the Department of Justice is at risk, right? As it as it is in this case. Um, so what what are we seeing? Well, what we're seeing is we're seeing a couple of things. One is a bureaucratic process playing out, and the second is that process playing out Within a broader context of the Biden administration's actual real politics, which is the return to normality, right? Uh, I think a lot of people have been trying to nail down what the Biden administration's politics are, but that, that is what it is. I mean, their, their entire politics, and they talked about this during the election, was about getting back to normal, it was eliminating the aberration, right? Donald Trump being the, you know, aberration, eliminating that aberration from American history, returning back to normal, right? It's an absurd politics, but it is what it is um, within the administration. So the return to normal, and you're hearing this more and more from from Democrats, in this case is based on this idea that we cannot have a class of people in the United States that exists with legal impunity. Um, that if the Department of Justice is ever to be a legitimate law enforcement entity again, as the argument goes, then every single person needs to be able to be prosecuted. And that if someone is, say, uh, for lack of a better term, and I used this term before we recorded, but too big to fail, essentially, or too popular or has too much support or their supporters are too dangerous for them to be arrested, the Department of Justice at that point really ceases to function um, in any way that could be considered even ideologically within the realm of liberal democracy to be equitable, right? So on some level, the entire mythology of law in liberal democracy resides on the back of the claim that all people within a liberal democracy are equal and that anybody can be charged and that law is neutral now we all know that's not true we all know that the people that enforce laws aren't neutral because humans have opinions about stuff right and that the enforcement of laws is relatively arbitrary um but at the same time it derives its legitimacy its political legitimacy through this claim of equity if donald trump were able to say for example just not have to deal with legal consequences because the department of justice is afraid of his supporters That fundamentally undermines not just the DOJ, but it undermines the entire argument for law within liberal democracy. It points out the fallacy and absurdity of the philosophical assumptions behind the notion of law as it exists within liberal democratic political projects. Um, So on some level, they have to do something right now. This is also happening in the context of there being multiple other investigations into Donald Trump currently happening which involve grand juries. So there's a January 6th grand jury. There's a grand jury in New York state about financial crimes. There's also a grand jury in Georgia that's investigating uh, election interference, right? All of that's happening, and there's any number of other investigations. So again, the Department of Justice were trying to sort of engage in some deep state plot to get rid of Donald Trump. They would have had plenty of better material to use than do took some documents home, right? Right? So really, what's happening here is you're dealing with the Department of Justice that is um, cautious and trying to act in such a way as to balance two very complicated factors, which I've mentioned already. The first being this notion that we need to return to normality and the way to return to normality is to eliminate the exceptions. And one way to eliminate the exceptions is to make sure that everybody is subject to the rule of law, right, as they like to say. Um, But that's also happening with this tension of knowing that, as we've talked about on the show before, the public interest doctrine does exist, and there might be people that to prosecute them would create significant amounts of political violence. What they're doing is they're trying to balance those things out. So in this case, let's talk about what they did. They contacted Trump's attorneys pretty quickly after he got out of office. So they've been working on this for over a year already. The only reason that they decided to raid Mar-a-Lago when they did, according to the sources that they had, is that they had come to find out that Donald Trump had not turned over some documents that were incredibly classified and that there was a suspicion that if he would have known that the FBI was coming, he would have destroyed the documents. And they needed to get the documents before
2: they were destroyed. Which is something he has a history of doing. I mean, there's literally An incredibly photos. long history of doing. Yeah. There's literally <laughs> photos of him tearing stuff. I mean, not him in the act of, but afterwards tearing them up, putting them in the toilet. I also heard that during his presidency, his aides would often tape together documents. Tape them together. And then yep. submit them because you're supposed to turn in everything, essentially.
5: Yes, there there was uh A team of, I think, three or four in the National Archives during the Trump administration whose sole job was to go through the trash and reassemble documents that had been shredded or torn up because he just did it out of habit, essentially. And so if you're the Department of Justice and you're sitting there and you're going, okay, well, we need these documents, but we need to get them in such a way as to not create a massive political crisis because we're trying to reinstitute this notion of legal legitimacy and normality then you would raid Mar-a-Lago exactly the way that they did. And that would be exactly the way that one would not do it if one were trying to destroy Donald Trump politically, right? right? Now, that might end up being the result. But that's definitely not the overt intention. Like, it is pretty obvious with the way that the DOJ is acting that, I mean, this is about idealistic understandings of the American legal system and sort of this attempt to work through bureaucracy almost to an absurd degree to reimpose that notion of normality and equity and legitimacy that forms the foundation of the entire American state.
2: So where do we see these tensions going? So this investigation is going on. Trump people are riled up. What do you think is going to happen? We've been pessimistic here of, you know, rich and powerful people, of course, especially former Presidents, you know, quote being brought to justice. I don't think anybody believes that's going to happen. What does this look like uh, playing out, especially as the midterms are coming up?
5: Yeah, I think there's kind of three layers to this, right? Um, there's an electoral layer which I could I could talk about first. There's this sort of layer which has to do with Donald Trump and the Department of Justice, and then there's this other layer which has to do with Donald Trump's supporters, right? So. Let's start with the election. With the midterms, one of the things that we're, we're seeing is that the Republicans are absolutely using this as a way to kind of revive this notion of Donald Trump as a victim of the deep states and that you really need to elect Republicans so they can hold the deep state accountable and blah, 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 blah. Like they're really going hard on this. I think the thing that they're seeing, though, or they should be seeing is it's not as effective as it was before. Um, As you mentioned before, nobody showed up to a protest in D.C. That Newsmax and OAN and even Fox had been doing outreach for, for free. And no one showed up. Two days after Mar-a-Lago got raided. Like, that's pretty sad. Not even Republican staffers who were there on Capitol Hill showed up, right? You're seeing Trumpian-endorsed candidates kind of end up with mixed results right now. You've definitely got people who are... Getting completely trounced. Um, you've got others who are winning, right? I mean, you've got like in Arizona right now, um, Carrie Lake, for example, is quite something. And and she will be the Republican nominee for governor, right? Uh you've got you know, Sarah Palin's back. You know, we're starting to see people like this, but then you've also got candidates like Dr. Oz or JD Vance, which are failing really hard right now. And part of that failure has to do with the fact that and specifically in JD Vance's case that he's trying to get ahead of where the conservative movement is. He's starting to talk about why people shouldn't get divorced, right? He's starting to talk about like making divorce harder to get, you know, forcing people to stay in abusive households, like real 1950s stuff. You know what I mean? And like what 1950s,
2: that's meant, try 1850s.
5: And what that's meant is like his support's been dropping through the floor because really at the end of the day, two thirds of Americans believe in people's right to have an abortion and 70% of Americans believe in marijuana legalism.
2: You know, Trump has never been divorced.
5: Right. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and so, you know, if you really look at social positions, conservative social positions are not popular. Right. And so the more that they kind of head in this direction, the more that they sort of embrace this kind of, headlong sprint into the outrage machine, the more and more and more you're starting to see the limitations of what their support is. Right. And so whether that plays out before November or not is a big question, but you're definitely seeing some solidifying of some of these blocks within the conservative movement, specifically in response to this. Right. The second layer here is, you know, this discussion of what happens with the department of justice and that's a fascinating question. So, you know, as I mentioned, there's this, this tension that exists where they have to um, balance this sort of necessity of establishing legitimacy through the idea of equity under rule of law and the necessity of not causing a massive political crisis. Now, if they charge Donald Trump federally with something, that's going to cause a massive political crisis. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, I don't think there's any way that that, that future gets avoided if he gets charged. Um, that would also happen if he gets charged in New York state or if he gets charged in Georgia. Um, there's very likely to be significant levels of political violence that result from that. And so what's very likely to happen and what I'm starting to see kind of move itself in this direction is you're starting to see all these grand juries happen at the same time. You're starting to see the FBI actually gathering like evidence, evidence of, of felonies, right? Um, you definitely had people in the context of the January 6th committee handing lots of documents over to the department of justice, right? As well as the, the committee. And so what it looks like is that the DOJ is building a number of cases, that they may or may not actually bring. And when that happens, generally, um, you do that in the context of trying to achieve some sort of plea deal. Um, anyone that's ever been arrested at a protest, right? A lot of us have experienced this you know, situation where we might have gotten arrested for like a curfew violation, but we're charged with like six felonies, right? And all of that is an attempt to get you to to plead. To something more minor. Um, they just way upcharge you knowing that you're not going to be able to fight it. In this case, the Department of Justice has this ability in this moment um, and it very very likely there's a high potential that they'll take it to walk up to Donald Trump's attorneys and say, hey, we've got these like eight possible federal cases here. Um, we will make those go away. But he has to never run for office again, which is the deal that they gave to Nixon, roughly. They said, you violated all these laws. We've got proof of it. You're in the process of, you know, having a sort of impeachment investigation launched. You're going to get impeached. You're probably going to get kicked out of office. And you're going to get charged federally for all of these crimes. Or you can resign and promise never to run for office again. And all of this will go away. And that's exactly what he did. There's a high likelihood that that a deal like that will be presented. And there's a high likelihood that Donald Trump will take it. For a simple reason. One of the things that we're seeing is Trump's influence is waning. He is definitely not as influential as he was when he was in office. Um, There's more factions in the Republican Party. Some of those factions are actually gaining some inertia, right? He's not the undisputed leader of the Republican party anymore. Um, he is still very much the most powerful person, but not in an undisputed way. And so if he were to get charged federally, all of his political involvement and all of his supporters would become singly focused on that. Right. Very likely on top of political violence against the people that are making that happen. Um, but that's not a way to maintain political uh, influence. So if Trump wants to maintain political influence, a plea deal makes a lot of sense. And it gives him the ability to say, oh, well, the deep state got rid of me and be the martyr, but then also be able to choose the person that's going to take his place. Right. He gets to become the kingmaker. He gets to say, this is the person I am appointing to be the next me. And that gives him incredible amounts of power politically, um, potentially even more so than he currently has. And so he has an incentive to take a plea deal like this. Um, and then you've got Trump supporters. And this is kind of the biggest X factor, right? For all of the reasons we've been talking about during this episode, there's a lot of mistrust amongst the right wing. People don't work together right now. And that's been true for a while. But the idea that everyone's a Fed now and that that's a, like Fed jacketing people is really, really common in right wing circles right now. It's, it's almost done flippantly. It's like done almost unthinkingly. Um, if you disagree with someone in the right wing now, they're, they're just a Fed. Um, anyone that's ever been around anarchist circles where paranoia has taken over and everyone became a Fed all of a sudden, uh, just knows how terrible that experience is. Um, I've definitely been through that at least once. Um, it's awful. And it destroys everything. And it means that you end up very much on your own. And so that has a number of effects. One of those effects is that in some ways it pushes the MAGA coalition back into kind of mass electoralism. Um, that there had been this sort of process around January 6th where you started seeing groups working together. Right. And one of the things that we talked a lot about during that period of time was the emergence of the new right wing coalition and looking to see what that was going to end up sort of shaking out like this sort of phenomena of everybody accusing everybody else of being a Fed is fundamentally destroying their ability to work across groups. And you're starting to see a lot more tension between organizations on the right wing and you're starting to see a lot of people's acting individually. Right. And not in the context of a group. Um, the second effect becomes exactly that. It becomes this scenario in which we have a politics here, right? In MAGA world in which everything is portrayed as an immediate existential threat. And what that does, especially when it's combined with social isolation, right? Like during the pandemic when it's combined with, you know, collapsing political and economic circumstances, um, is that that kind of a politics generates an extreme sense of desperation. That it's not just that things are bad, it's that things are bad and those people over there want them to get worse for you. And they're actively trying to make that happen right now. So in that sort of a space... The only logical choice is to do something, is to act on some level or to just stop doing politics altogether. But what gets eliminated is this notion that um, there is an environment in which politics occurs, that political conflict exists within, right? This sort of assumption of a parliamentary structure, which is so core to liberal democracy, again, just fictional, and absurd on a lot of levels we've talked about on the show many times. Um, but it, it, it is that the mythology of liberal democracy and this notion of reformism is an incredibly effective pressure valve to prevent more extreme political activity from happening, right? When that pressure valve goes away, when all of the elections are stolen when all of the people that are in office are trying to help make sure that the election stays stolen, when the deep state is working against you and all you have is you and your intrepid band of MAGA people and Donald Trump. When you get into that situation and then within MAGA world, there's nowhere to put your political energy. You end up with individuals finding an outlet, which is very much what happened in Cincinnati. There was another guy this week who, drove his truck into concrete barriers on Capitol Hill, fired a gun in the air four times, and then committed suicide right in front of the Capitol cops. Right. People bring guns in cars down to the Capitol, like once every other week at this point. And the bomb threats are more or less constant. Right. Those are all individuals acting alone. Every single one of them. Um, That indicates something. And it indicates a sense in which MAGA world is sort of stuck in its own narrative, right? That to maintain the narrative of constant outrage and fear and existential threat, they have to continually escalate. Everything needs to be portrayed that way. And that escalates the sense of desperation, which escalates the possibility of lone wolf political violence. and also escalates the delegitimization of the same political system that they're trying to take control of. Right. But if they don't do that, then they've gone soft. They're just rhinos now. They're not willing to say the real stuff, as Trump supporters like to say. Um, they're not willing to talk, to say the truth. You know, they're not willing to sort of say the most extreme thing. And with right-wing politics pushed into this sort of position of maximalism, um, right now, MAGA world is sort of in a tough position where it can kind of continue down this road and in the process increase political tension, delegitimize the structures they're trying to take over and end up more marginal, or they're going to have to go soft. And who knows what happens in that case. But the reality of that is they do not end up in power again if they go soft. So for them to maintain any ability to take power again, they have to also undermine the thing that they're trying to take power of um it's not just the state but also the republican party itself it's a fascinating self-defeating political dynamic um but it's what we're seeing and depending on what happens in this situation with the department of justice i think that's going to have a huge influence on what this kind of development in MAGA world starts to look like does it become increasingly extreme faster and faster and faster which will absolutely happen if he gets charged federally. Or will it sort of go soft and lose inertia because he doesn't get charged and there's not that sort of political inflection point. Um that's what we still have yet to see. Um, and that is what we will find out, I think, from what happens, not just from this raid, but also any of the other numbers of investigations that are happening at the moment. Um, those investigations become bargaining chips right? Charges become bargaining chips. And really what's being bargained is um, the long-term existence of right-wing lone wolf political violence. Like that's what's being bargained over. Um, That's sort of what we're looking at at the moment.
2: This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms, IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.